everyone. What a great morning. Um, we're just going to dive right in, and I just, I want to thank Ron. He, he's been an incredible pain, and he came up here to honor uh, our, those who have fallen and given their lives uh, for our freedoms, uh, and so I just want to make sure that Ron gets recognition for that. What a great man. So, all right. We're going to be in uh, Luke 6 today, starting in verse 17. Luke 6, 7. All right. And uh, you'll keep your finger in, in Luke there. Uh, you will also jump into Matthew quite a bit. But there, we got a lot of passages. They should all be written on your little note uh, page. And so if you want to go back later and read them, I'm going to rattle through some of those um, for the sake of time today. But uh, Luke 6, 17. And he came down to them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem uh, and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And the crowd sought to touch him for power came out from him and healed them all. And he lifted his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold... Your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. Our merciful God, we thank you that you know our hearts, and yet you still allow us to gather as your church in the name of Jesus. Lord, we surrender our hearts and our minds to you, uh, that we might partake of your word and be filled, cause us to embrace and to embody the spirit of humility and poverty that we may be truly blessed. God, let us see our desperate need for the favor that you would bestow on us to bring us provision. Let us bless not the provision, but the provider who shall receive glory and honor forever. Cause us to receive the scriptures with holy submission and full reverence this morning. God, we ask that your Holy Spirit would be with us this morning as we receive that which gives us knowledge of you. And so we give this time over to you in the name of Jesus. Amen. When we sit back and think about it, security is an illusion. It doesn't exist in reality. You've heard it said that the only guarantees in life are death and taxes. In fact, you've heard the statistics on death, right? One out of every one person dies. Apart from Christ, that is a grim truth. We have all noticed that as atheism and agnosticism have become the dominant religions in our culture, and the belief that this 
short life is all that there is, as well as this responsibility of family being no longer the most important thing to people. Our culture has broken down as violence, depression, other mental illnesses, suicide, corruption, the deification of sexual freedom, and the absence of personal integrity have overtaken our cultural landscape. So many young people see that brokenness and division in society around us and begin to put their hope in things like political ideologies, social movements, and instant gratification. And when they find that all of those things are bound to fail to answer the question of their existence, the resulting hopelessness becomes volatile in any number of ways. The thing that becomes most absent in their worldview is hope. I used to really like this, this band back in the 90s. They're called The Crucified. They're kind of like this punk thrash band. Don't judge me. I was young and, okay, I'll still listen to it. It's fun, right? Uh, but Mark Solomon, their vocalist, uh, laments in one of their songs, don't get your hopes up, son. There are no guarantees in life but one that eventually you'll die. It's a guarantee you cannot escape from. So I'm sitting here all alone. It's always worse when no one's home. Why should I continue on if death is the only final outcome to pursue some mythical success that some have been fooled to think exists only to meet frustration and die? Still they go on trying and trying and I refuse to live that lie. But what is there except to die? But I knew I required some change. Every day comes up the same. Fruitless. Now that song is speaking of the human condition apart from Christ, which was very common to their songwriting. On the other hand, in America, many of us are extremely prosperous. We're so prosperous that we feel secure in our freedom and our prosperity. But we fail to realize that we have nothing but what God has allowed us to have. And so we don't understand poverty very well. And because we are so often so unable to comprehend our physical need, because since it's always provided for, we are unable to understand our spiritual poverty. We tend to trust our own wisdom and ability because we've been seduced into believing that those are what have brought us stability and safety in life. And we fail to realize that security is an illusion and it can all be taken in but a moment. I was talking to some of the guys on Wednesday and realized for a lot of us, we're just one careless toss of a cigarette away from losing everything, including our jobs. It's the cost of living in Idaho. And it's worth it. I mean, have you looked around, right? But, but we do what we can to protect our assets because there are no guarantees. Remember the run on the banks in the 1930s that led to the Great Depression? Anybody old enough to remember that personally? No? Okay, I didn't think so. But, but I remember something similar walking around Temecula uh, between about 2008 and maybe 2010 or 12 where I would run into these people who had been very successful at one point with big suburban homes and their, their expensive cars and SUVs and they're now sleeping in front of vacant storefronts. Whole families living in luxury cars 
because they lost their homes and they're praying that the bank doesn't find them and take their car or that social service wouldn't find them and take their children. Kids of the year before were playing in all the sports leagues with all the most expensive gear and going to private schools. You see, whatever we have now, we are not guaranteed to have tomorrow. I am not guaranteed even my very next breath. Earlier this week, 22 lost their lives in a mass killing event at Robb Elementary School in Texas. It's tragic. I think all of us have probably at least shed some tears over it. One of those, one of the deceased was an 18-year-old with no hope, a gunman who decided that it was time to end the lives of more than a dozen and a half children who had their whole lives ahead of them. It wasn't about guns. It wasn't about mental illness. It wasn't about a broken family or political ideologies or video games. Yeah, all those things likely played a role and they'll be looked at. But the real problem is the absence of hope. Some of those things contributed to the lack of hopefulness, but the only answer to the absence of, of hope is the renewal of hope, and the only source for eternal hope is Jesus. The last thing any of those parents thought was that when they sent their kids off to school that morning, it would be the last time they saw them alive. There are no promises in life but one. And until we understand our poverty, we will never appreciate our desperate need for Jesus. And until we recognize our complete need for Jesus and surrender to him, we are just one tragedy away from the absence of hope. If you knew you would never see your child alive again, you would hold them so much tighter. You would kiss them more. You would cling to them. You wouldn't let them go. And if we understood our utter poverty, we would cling to our Lord Jesus that much tighter. I think we often tend to. This morning, we're going to see people coming to Jesus to hear him. And we're going to see him then address their needs as only the Son of God can do. And we're going to see that whether or not they understood their need for him, he is going to fill that need and in doing so, the crowds are going to clamor to him and touch him. And, and then he gives them hope. And we're going to see the answer to Mark Solomon's little punk rock lament that we read, which is hope that only Jesus can furnish. And as we look at this passage, I want us to be asking if we are clamoring for Jesus. Verse 17, Luke six seventeen. And he came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon. As always, we'll start with the context of our passage. Remember last week we saw him calling 12 apostles from a whole crowd of his disciples. And this was taking place as opposition to Jesus and his disciples is mounting. And this pericope here begins with, and he came down. In other words, it's a continuation of the last part where he's calling those apostles. So he points apostles, he goes down to this flat area, and there's, there's a big question as to what that looks like. We call what follows here the Sermon on the Plain. Many people think this is Luke retelling an abridged 
version of the Sermon on the Mount. You can read about that in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. But the reason is that he was clearly on some sort of mountain coming down to a flat area. And, a, and that flat area could just be a plateau, plateau somewhere on the mountain. So he may have still been on the, the mountain. On the other hand, everyone who preaches tends to recycle a lot of their content. And there would be no reason for Jesus not to do the same. So it's also very likely to be a different sermon with much of the same content. So for a number of reasons, that's a position I tend to hold to very loosely. But it really, it doesn't make a difference. The message here is what is paramount. And it's clear. Now, first, it wouldn't be a stretch to imagine this taking place. Here's Jesus standing here and then the, the 12 apostles right before him and then right behind them, maybe the uh, rest of these disciples, maybe hundreds of them, and then the crowds surrounding the whole thing. Uh, and in verse 18, it says that they all came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases and those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. Now, they came from all over the map to hear him speak. And this is an important point. We see that when God speaks, we receive more than just information. Robert Stein said this, even more important than seeking healing, the importance of which need not be minimized is the need to hear the word of God. In fact, Romans 10 tells us, uh, Romans 10 verse 17 tells us, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. And we translate here, that word we can translate here can actually mean to heed or to obey. Do, do you get that? Listen, obedience to Christ is the most hopeful disposition a human can possess. Sure, our hope is in his grace. But as a way of living life, there is nothing more hopeful than following where Jesus is leading. If you're a Christian and you're having trouble being hopeful, hear and obey the word of God. If you trust his grace, that's how you put your faith into practice. So these masses are coming to listen to Jesus and to be healed of their diseases and, and it's important because it reveals that there's a reputation that is growing. And while that reputation is growing, so is his reputation with the Pharisees who really were concerned about what this guy was teaching and promoting. And here's Jesus pouring out his grace by healing people of their diseases and by cleansing them of unclean spirits. You remember when Jesus touched the leper and made him clean? And then because our need is not just for physical healing, but for spiritual cleansing, and Jesus does both of those things through his word. Moving on to verse 19, it says, All the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him and healed them all. So now that the reputation of Jesus is spreading. The leper's been touched by Jesus and now the crowds are seeking to touch him. And the reason for that is his power or his authority. The reason that our hope is found in Jesus is because of his authority. 
When we obey him, we are rightly correcting our corrupt state by recognizing who the real authority in this world is. And up to this point in Luke, we've seen his authority over things like spiritual beings, illness, nature, what isn't isn't clean, uh, forgiveness of sin, morality, Sabbath keeping, and, and calling people to ministry. These are all things that he's demonstrated his authority in. And the list is going to continue to grow throughout Luke. But that authority is the source of hope for followers of Jesus because it is what gives them, or what gives him rather, the power to give grace to each of us. I can extend grace to you all day long, but it's only going to apply to whatever lies within the scope of my own authority. I, I can't forgive you for stealing from Walmart, right? I don't have that authority, right? I, I, I can't forgive you for betraying your spouse. Only your spouse can forgive that. I can't give you grace for disappointing your children. Your children can only give you grace for that. Or for sinning against God. I cannot give you grace for that. I can only offer grace for the effect that you've had on me. But God's grace is for everything because he has authority over everything. So here in Luke 6, we see that Jesus has come down the mountain onto some sort of a plain or a plateau. The disciples, the apostles, this big crowd are experiencing grace through Jesus uh, through his healing and cleansing, and then he begins to speak. Verse 20, Luke 6, 20, And he lifted his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets. Now notice that Jesus is speaking specifically to his disciples. That's why I think the function of preaching really is for those mostly for those who belong to Jesus. The gospel message should always be implicit because even those of us who may have relatively strong faith need to hear the gospel over and over and over again. We need that. And in this place, the crowds are still, they're, they're hearing. And Jesus' message to his disciples is going to affect these crowds. But in too many churches I think that I've been involved with, the Sunday service is primarily for reaching the lost. It's evangelistic. And those disciples of Jesus in that church are all but ignored. And I've actually heard it said that those more mature believers should be self-feeding. I think there are a lot of reasons that I don't believe that works well. But the first is that Jesus, when he was preaching, generally directed his words at his disciples. That wasn't always the case, but generally that was the model. And what follows is much like some of the oracles that we find in the Old Testament. I want to give you an example out of Psalm 1. In fact, if you have been in the le uh, men's leadership study uh, that uh, begins uh, every week at Odark 30, um, you might have this memorized. 
Psalm 1, 1 through 3, blessed is the man. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. And all that he does, he prospers. So he starts his sermon here by saying, Blessed are the poor. This is Jesus speaking. Blessed are the poor. It's, we call that oracle of blessing a beatitude. Uh, Luke only lists four blessings. Mark lists eight. And Mar- and, uh, or not Mark, I mean Matthew. In Matthew chapter 5. Again, it could be a summary. It could be a different sermon. doesn't make a difference. But Luke says, blessed are the poor. Matthew says this in Matthew 5, 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And the reason for that is that this is not really talking about living on beans and rice. Uh, King David was far from economically poor. And this is what he said in Psalm 86.1. He says, incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. How does King King David claim to be poor and needy? Well, physical poverty, first off, is subjective. I know a woman who runs a Christian orphanage in India, and it's very dangerous, and their diet is mostly rice. Uh, every now and then, on a Sunday, the children might get a little bit of chicken with their rice, and to them, that is a big, exciting feast. Now, I've been poor, but I've never been that poor. And I believe most of even the homeless in America eat better than that. So, so how poor is poor? I don't think that's the point. The point is not about how much provision there is, but understanding our utter dependence upon God for that provision. We mentioned in the beginning that it could all be gone in a moment's notice. Do we recognize our poverty? Do we understand our utter dependence upon God? If we do, do you know why we're blessed? Once we recognize the humble estate we exist in, that promise of our eternal inheritance takes on that much more meaning. Romans 5, uh, I'm sorry, Romans 8, one of my favorite passages in scripture. Romans 8, verses 15 to 17. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons. The son is the preeminent heir. So male, female, whatever. Adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. How does this attitude of poverty play out in our lives? Do we recognize that we have nothing but are given an inheritance as co-heirs of Jesus? What is his inheritance? Everything. Mark chapter 12. Mark 12, 41 to 44. And he sat down opposite the treasure. This is speaking of Jesus. 
and he watched people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had. All she had to live on. Why would this woman give her last little bit of provision? The implication here is that she recognized that God alone has the authority over whether or not she eats. He is the provider. Her hope was not in the little money that was provided for her, but in the God who provided it. Those who will place their trust in God instead of what little they have are truly blessed because God owns all and that is their inheritance. Mm. Matthew 19. See, this is, this is why Jesus says this in Matthew 19. Verse 23, truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. It's, it's because the rich have a harder time understanding their poverty. That word blessed has been interpreted, oh, how happy. Now, it's a good translation functionally, but I think it's a weak one because the word that we translate blessed implies being favored in this context. It would refer to being given favor by God who has authority over all of creation. It's a, it's a favor. It comes from God. One of the great blessings of scripture is found in Numbers 6. You've heard this here um, likely numerous times. Numbers 6, 24 to 26 says, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. R.C. Sprawl explains that. He says, blessedness is to be brought into an intimate relationship with Almighty God so that he would literally make his face radiate and make the refulgence of his glory shine on you. 2 Corinthians 8 9 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. And speaking of our inheritance, right? And, and, and realize this is deeper than just physical need. Our greatest poverty is that there is no good in us but what God has provided. Psalm 14, verse 2 and 3, it says this, the Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. 
It is only because God has provided a way through Christ's suffering that we can have any good in us. We are spiritually destitute and any goodness in us has been supplied by our God. That being said, God also is certainly concerned with the economically poor. In fact, in the Psalms, it says this, Psalm 146, 5 through 8, it says, Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down, bowed down and the Lord loves the righteous. In fact, we, we just saw that Jesus met the physical need, uh, the physical needs of the crowd that, that he was speaking to here. And now their neediness has become an object lesson to demonstrate the blessedness of recognizing our need for Christ. One of the functions of poverty also is hunger. There's this homeless man that uh, we knew that was involved in a little church plant in Denver, Colorado that I had been involved with almost 20 years ago. And he would share about his experiences about being homeless and the lifestyle and everything. And one time he was sharing about the excitement of finding a cheese box the night before at a truck stop trash can. Well, we didn't know what a cheese box was. So we asked. A cheese box is an old pizza box that still has the melted cheese from the pizza stuck to it. And apparently that's like striking gold to some of the homeless out there. I know what you're thinking. Like I would have to be really hungry to go after a truck stop cheese box. Here's the way Matthew puts it in Matthew 5, 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they shall be satisfied. Again, God's concerned about physical hunger, but Jesus has dealt with the physical needs in the text and is now speaking about a spiritual disposition. When we understand our poverty, we are satisfied with what God provides. But in our poverty, we are famished and parched we're desperate for the provision that only God can supply. Psalm 42, 1 and 2 says, As the deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? When we, when we would pant for our righteousness, oh, that we would do that, to be to be right with God. Oh, that we would cling to him as our only source of that which we so desperately need. Psalm 63:1. Oh God, you are my God. I earnestly seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. Is in a dry and weary land where there is no water. My soul thirsts for you. Is that our disposition? God is certainly concerned with physical hunger. But 
Here we have a metaphor that represents a right disposition of craving to be right before God. Notice though how Luke includes the word now. Blessed are you who are hungry now. It's temporal. They will be satisfied. And being satisfied from hunger is like the best condition ever, isn't it? Like, you know that Thanksgiving turkey coma? Right? Is there anything more satisfying than that? Like you fall, when you fall into a good turkey coma, nothing can bother you. Nothing. You're watching football on Thanksgiving and somebody comes in and changes the TV to It's a Wonderful Life. Like any other occasion, images of shallow graves start to enter your mind. Right here. But with a turkey coma, It's a Wonderful Life is just as good as football. You don't, even, you don't even care that Uncle Dan just spent an hour trying to convince the whole family of his political opinions. Like, like, why does this happen? Well, football is emotionally satisfying to watch, but a turkey coma satisfies both physically and emotionally. Can you smell it? Like right now, can you smell it? Like that turkey and the stuffy along with the, 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 the green beans that are always, I don't know why, so much better on Thanksgiving right? And those gooey rolls with the butter, right? And, the, and then the sweet potatoes with the marshmallows all toasty and crispy on top, right? Mm. <laughs> Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you will be satisfied. You know what's more satisfying than a turkey coma? The righteousness of Jesus that he applies to us. Jesus is the source of our satisfaction if we are Christians. And, and weeping. Weeping is also connected to poverty. Right? We read that. In the physical sense, it would be over oppression or grief, but it's more often referring to, to mourning in repentance. In fact, James 4 says this. James 4, verses 9 and 10. It says, Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. The statement in James is written similarly to what is in Luke and in the Psalms as like an oracle. Again, Luke employs the word now to indicate that the condition of weeping is temporary. There's nothing we should lament more than our own sin. Everyone weeps over loss or injustice. But what this is speaking of is that we hunger and thirst for righteousness and then we weep at our total depravity because we cannot be righteous on our own. The fact that we are hopelessly impoverished because there is no good in us. Only God can satisfy hunger and only he can wipe every tear from our eyes and turn our mourning into laughter. And it's all temporary because Jesus is coming back. In fact, let's look at Revelation 21. Revelation 21. He will wipe, this is verse four, he will wipe every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. 
That's the hope. That's the promise we have. The, the point is that we cry out to God in our distress as we realize our moral and spiritual poverty. Psalm 30, 10 through 12 says, Hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me. O Lord, be my helper. You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. O Lord, my God, I will give thanks to you forever. I like to... I like to think that we laugh a lot at IBC. We have fun because we've realized that our poverty has been healed by the hope that Christ brings us. He's turned our mourning into laughter. We should still go to mourning over sin, but we can have joy knowing that we have those promises. We don't need to fear God anymore because our sin, because of our sin rather, He will satisfy our hunger. He will turn our mourning into laughter, and we shall inherit the kingdom of God as his beloved adopted children. And because of that hope that we have, we can be joyful even now. In the last two verses of our text, though, he shifts back to the physical issue. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you, and revile you, and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. The thing is, we are going to face opposition. It's the condition we're in. If we are following Jesus, we are in this world. In fact, Jesus himself said this in, in John 15, starting in verse 18, the world, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name because they do not know him who sent me. As Christians, let's face it, we live a pretty charmed life in the United States, don't we? We do. Relative to the rest of the world, and, and we suffer a little bit of discrimination here and there depending on our uh, where we go in life. And, and it's probably going to get worse, particularly in places like, like California. But in many similar countries, children are, are, are being removed from families who homeschool them because they don't want their children indoctrinated by government-run schools. Or because they're teaching them really dangerous values like biblical sexual ethics or biblical science. We need to be careful not to assume that we're immune to that. Especially because Jesus pretty much told us that our lives are likely going to get harder when we follow him. Paul had a much better life when he was persecuting Christians than he did when he became one. It became a life of suffering when he surrendered to Jesus. Jesus continues in, in, in Luke 6, 23, Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. Rejoice and leap for joy! when they treat you like garbage. 
I have this picture in my mind of joy that I, I'll never forget it. I worked for a flight school when I was in college, and my dentist began taking flying lessons. And he, and earlier in his life, he had experienced incredible grief. Both of his sons uh, had been killed in separate motorcycle accidents not long from each other. But years later, he's taking flying lessons, and he's just always happy, just this really happy guy. And he would, he would pull up, and I think it was a BMW, and he'd run across the parking lot and often just leap right over the picnic table that's in front of the flight school there. Like just leaping right over, not like a little but like leaping over the table. And that's what I envision when I think of leaping for joy, this like just exuberant leap. We have the promise of an inheritance. Jesus said, your reward is great in heaven. Not that it might be or it could be. Notice that the reward is not something that's contingent on our merit, right? Rejoice because you have your reward coming. We are rewarded because of Christ's merit, because he lived a perfect life and died on the cross in our place. And that blessedness is also not a result of the condition in and of itself either, but in the one who is suffering they are identifying with the Son of Man, as it says. We get to identify with Jesus. First Peter 4.14 says, If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. And if you go back a couple of chapters into First Peter chapter 1, verses 6 to 9, it says, In this you rejoice. Now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. We will face some level of suffering on this earth. And by experiencing that, we get to identify with our Lord and look forward to our inheritance. In America, we, we're rich. We are rich. In fact, if we live up here in Idlewild, even if we feel like we don't have much, we live in Idlewild, right? Like, we're pretty darn rich compared to most even of the U.S. We are truly blessed. And knowing that, how can we find a way to identify with the poverty of Christ? Kent Hughes asked it this way. He says, can we have plenty and feel our need? The world has a lot to offer. But any confidence that we might place in that is an illusion. Anything that we find hope and peace in apart from God's provision will betray us. And that's why we must see ourselves as poor, 
as hungry, as sorrowful over our sin, we must recognize our utter poverty because the world wants to convince us that we don't need God. In fact, in that song I told you about earlier, there was a chorus line, um, and it says this, this world betrays. This world, it feasts upon me. And we recognize our impoverished state. We recognize our poverty. And the fact that we will face painful opposition from the world around us, it feels heavy. And it's meant to feel heavy. So that we will recognize our need and we will cast that burden upon Jesus. That, that same vocal, vocalist, Mark Solomon, uh, from The Crucified that I told you about earlier, later formed another band called Stavesaker, and they wrote a song called Keep Waiting. And here's a line from that song that's done from the perspective of Jesus, and I liked what it said here. So this is as if Jesus were speaking. It says, And when they try to take your eyes off of me, remember me. Remember me. Remembrance is so important. It continues, keep waiting. I'll be right on time. Blessed are those who wait on the Lord. I think that's a good passage to close with. Isaiah chapter 40. Because this is the hope that we have in understanding our poverty. Isaiah 40, verses 28 to 31. Have you not known have you not heard the Lord is an everlasting God, the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary. Young men shall fall exhausted, but they who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Our hope is not in our provisions. Our hope is in our provider. Will you let go of your dependence on your, on your finances, on your job? Will you let go of your dependence on your freedoms and on democracy and on America and on your family, on your plans? And will you embrace your poverty and lay it all at the feet of Jesus and rely on him. Let's pray. Our God, we surrender to you all that has been provided for us. It is yours to give and yours to take. God, we thank you for the blessedness that we receive in understanding who you are, understanding who we are and what you give to us, your blessed heirs. God, forgive us for relying upon ourselves and the illusion of security that we so often falsely believe that we have achieved. Lord, teach us to cling to you as our only source of what is good, both in the physical and spiritual sense. Oh, Father God, give us the strength to let go and to surrender to you 
and all you have for us that we may be truly blessed. Give us strength to endure with great joy the rejection and even persecution of this world for your sake. We offer ourselves over to you in all of our poverty and wantonness and neediness as living sacrifices of praise. Guide us into our week and into our mission field and by your authority, bless us and give us strength in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit.